I have a friend who is a prolific writer. And when I say prolific, I mean he's putting stuff out there once, sometimes twice a day. And he wrote on his blog the other day about how he used to be so sure of so many things and how his opinions on those things have changed. And it got me thinking about all the preconceived notions I bring into my study of the Bible. I I don't know that I've ever really expressed them or that I'm even aware of them most of the time. But I do have certain expectations of God, of the characters, of how if this happens, then that should happen. Or why did this happen at all? Or how all these things are supposed to work together. I have ideas. And I kind of think that things should go that way. For example, how God works in the lives of his people. I have this notion that God works in a straight line. As if his will were always in front of us, right? in this straight line, but we're the ones who are doing this, trying to always find our way back to the straight line. And, and, you know, we often talk about the will of God in sort of mysterious terms. Like, it's out there, and I'm, I'm trying to do the will of God. Man, I hope that I'm sure following his will. I've prayed about this so I can follow the will of God So it very much expresses this idea that God's will is this sort of, in my head, this straight line in front of me, and we are always trying to align ourselves with it. And I have notions about the people that God is working through and what they look like. Generally speaking, they are good people who might make mistakes sometimes, but overall, they live a godly life. They're doing the God kinds of things, which is how you can identify them in the story. They're doing the God kinds of things. They're they're worshiping or they're praying or they are aligning themselves with him. Do you carry some of those similar kinds of notions? I mean, these are really broad generalizations, I know. But they work because I would imagine that most of us have had these ideas about Scripture and story for a long time. I don't know how many times I have read the Jacob story, but it became apparent to me in the past that I have entered and left the story with these same notions. I mean, I have read Jacob, the Jacob story as a kid. I have taught on the Jacob story before at various times in my life. But maybe you can identify with this. This was the first time since I was so depressed and so sick when I was hospitalized, when I didn't know where my life was going to go, when I had lost my complete sense of self. This is the first time I looked at some notes that I taught years ago and thought to myself, I wrote that before all of that happened to me. I put those thoughts down about this thing before I am who I am now. 
And who I was before was convinced of some things also. Probably even more convinced of the things I've already told you about this morning. But who I am now sees the flaw in my thinking. Because I understand now that God doesn't work in a straight line. That God works to a degree frenetically, adapting to the movements of his creation, constantly, constantly doing different things. I mean, shoot, if he kept things in a straight line, we would never find the line. You know what I'm saying? And the characters, well, at least in this story, which I think is why it's so valuable to us, we're not even sure they're good people, let alone godly people. And yet, God works through them and keeps his promises to them. So this morning, we are going to face a similar challenge of an idea that we bring into biblical story and that we apply to our own stories that may be faulty, and that idea circles around victory. What does victory look like? Now, I would imagine on some level we have an idealized version of what victory is. Someone has an illness, and you pray to God that they would be healed from that illness. So what does victory look like? Healing from that illness. But how many times have we prayed for someone, and they haven't been healed? So is that a loss? And is victory only this one thing? What about the struggles that we've had in our lives, whether they be uh, emotional or mental or financial or interpersonal with people around us? What does victory look like in those things? God, this relationship is broken. Will you repair this relationship? And weeks or months later, it is still broken and a sore spot in your heart. Is that a loss? Did you not gain victory through God in that moment? Maybe you're seeing the problem. I hope you are because I'm spelling it out pretty clearly. If victory always has to mean that we overcome in a grand, miraculous, and spectacular way, we are going to end up thinking that there is not very much victory in our lives. And whether we identify that as a loss or not may depend on how great that lack of victory is. This morning, our idea of what it looks like will be challenged. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 30. As we pick up the story this week, Jacob had gone through what I'm going to politely call a difficult season. Um. He had finally arrived at his uncle Laban's house after running for his life from his brother, and when he got there, he fell in love with Rachel, one of Laban's daughters. He agreed to work for seven years for Rachel and did so happily because he loved her so much, but Laban pulled the old sister switcheroo, tale as old as time, on the wedding night, and Jacob married Leah, the older sister, instead of Rachel. 
So he pledged another seven years for Rachel, marrying her just a week later. And for some reason, which is probably a mystery to all of us, this caused hard feelings. Jacob was not happy with Laban, and for good reason he had been deceived. Leah was not happy with Jacob, with Rachel, or with Laban because she was the least loved. Rachel wasn't happy because the man she loved had married someone else and then became a baby factory and kept pushing out these kids, one son after another, while she was barren. And so this time when they established their family uh, was a time of, of great joy filled with jealousy, heartbreak, anger, and ultimately several male children with names like Vindicated and My Struggle. We saw that throughout, though, all of this man-made chaos that God was still working to establish his people and keep his promises to Jacob. So when we pick up the story today, Jacob had come to what amounts to a, a really, really big decision. He decided it was time. It was time for him to leave the house of Laban and go back to his homeland. And we're not told a whole lot about how he made this decision, but there are a couple of factors we need to consider. Number one, it was not a viable option for him to stay in Laban's house. Uh, Laban had shown that he would not deal with Jacob honestly. And uh, to some degrees, you know, as Jacob came out as this man of conflict and the, the heel grabber, always looking for more, Laban is almost that to the next degree. And, and secondly, Jacob has now established this household, which has grown to be pretty large. He was growing, his house was growing in size and wealth and influence, and he was coming to the point where he understood that he didn't really need Laban anymore. After all, he had God. So he wanted what he was owed so he could leave. So he went to Laban, and he asked for his permission or blessing to go home. But for some odd reason, Laban decided that wasn't such a good idea. Let's pick it up in verse 25 through 36. After Rachel, after Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. He added, name your wages and I will pay them. Right. Jacob said to him, you know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something? For my own household. What shall I give you? He asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages, and my honesty 
he didn't say that ironically, will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban, let it be as you have said. That same day he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats and all the dark colored lambs and he placed them in the care of his sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. Okay, so at this point, I hope you're not terribly surprised by anything that happens in this story. I mean, if an alien showed up at some point, like it would probably seem normal. But we learn here that Laban is quite the individual. After all, Jacob had worked for Laban more than 14 years. We're not sure the exact number, but it is more than that because he worked for Laban before and after. Jacob was ready to leave, but Laban was only concerned about what was in it for him. So this is the custom of the time. All of these children and, and Rachel and Leah were belonged to Jacob. However, Jacob was living in whose house? Laban's. So while Laban was alive, while these things, while, while Jacob had claim to all of these things, his family, technically, they belong to Laban because he is the head of the household. So Jacob was kind of in a bad spot in terms of wanting to leave because he needed Laban's blessing. Without Laban's blessing, it would be really difficult for him to take everything he had earned and everything that was his and just leave because that would give Laban the right to chase after him and to reclaim anything that belonged to Jacob as his own. So he could still go, but it would have been one of those leaving in the middle of the night and maybe leaving kid 10, 11, and 12 behind. So Laban told him, I want you to stay, which is kind of ironic because it's almost, he, he speaks of it like he's giving Jacob a choice. Please stay. But Jacob doesn't really have a choice. But he tries to strike a deal with Jacob again. Name your price. Now, has Jacob heard this before? Yes. And did he name his price? Yes. And did Laban pay that price? No. So I, kind of, I find it kind of humorous that Laban said the same thing again. Tell me what it's going to take to get you in this car today. But he had to make this move because Laban understood something, this one major thing, and that is the blessings of God were so great on Jacob that they poured over on to Laban. He was way more wealthy at this point of his life than he was when Jacob first got there. Now, how did Laban figure this out? I find this to be really interesting. Do you remember? It was in the first part of the story. He found out through divination. Now, let me just ask uh, just a simple practical question. If at one point you had, let's say, 100 sheep, and 15 years later you have 10,000 sheep, 
do you need some sort of spirit to tell you that you are better off with the 10,000 sheep than you were with the 100? Not really. You don't need to go to the spirits, oh, great spirits, is my life better now than it was before? But he did that. He looked for supernatural means to give him an answer. The blessing was obvious, right? But what we see is that Laban didn't understand the blessing. He didn't know what it was. Have I just been lucky for 16 years straight? What does this tell us about him? Well, while he's a schemer, he's not totally aware of what's going on around him. And he is also not aware of the God of Jacob until it's pointed out to him. So Jacob leaving him would have been the worst thing. So Jacob does agree to this deal, which we know is not the best move for, with someone like Laban. So Laban asked him what he wanted, and Jacob said, I don't want anything. He's already made the point, right, that everything Laban has has come while Jacob was there. So what he asked for is just a part of what Laban has earned during Jacob's time. It's a very fair request. It's a very fair request. So he asked for the speckled, spotted, dark-colored sheep, goats, lambs. And, and the idea was that by taking these animals, he could build his own flocks until Laban was ready to let him go and Jacob felt like he was ready to go as well. This would allow Jacob to build his house and eventually leave. But Laban was very Laban-esque. So he went out that very day and took all of those colored animals out, those spotted, speckled, dark animals. He took them out and moved them how far away? Three days. Three days journey. So that when Jacob went out to the flocks, there would not be anything but these white or solid, light-colored sheep and goats. What a great guy, Richie, right? Everybody has an uncle like this, right? <laughs> it's hard at this point to look at Laban as anything but the enemy. He is a major obstacle standing in the way. He stood in opposition to Jacob and ultimately to God. And what makes this so interesting to us as readers is that we are challenged to deal with these people who kept treating each other so horribly that they're almost inventing ways to deceive one another. Any opening, any weakness will be exploited and used. We, however, have been seeing a little bit of a change in Jacob. Did you see it? In the story, Jacob is not totally the same. It, the whole time, really, he's been at Laban's house. There has been a subtle change in him. It's not dramatic, but he was acting more responsibly and honestly than we have seen him act. Because, as opposed to Laban, Jacob is in the middle of a redemption cycle. 
He is discovering who God is. He knows now that God has pledged to keep his promises, and now he is living in the middle of God, fulfilling those promises. And what has changed about his demeanor? He doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen anymore, right? But he stopped scheming. Well, mostly. He now understands that God is with him and that his best life for him is the one that is being formed by God, even if he doesn't know how he's going to figure this out. It started when he met God in the wilderness, and we're seeing the evolution of it now. Laban, on the other hand, is not in a redemption cycle. He's in a downward spiral, and there is a clear difference set for us as readers in the story between these two men. Jacob used to be Laban, but now he's not. And so by putting Laban into this position for us, we are able to see some of the change in Jacob that we might not have seen otherwise. But what about God? Where is God in the middle of all of this mess? You all right? Randy, would you go help uh, young Zeke back there? Uh, okay. So here's what we need to here's what we need to see in in God's role. Number one, it was not God that was making Jacob's life more difficult. Okay, God was not putting this difficulty in front of him. God was not influencing uh, Laban to make these choices. Laban was making these choices all on his own, and Jacob is having to deal with all of these people and all of this conflict. Now, certainly, God set the table for Jacob because what did He say Jacob's life was going to be like? He was going to be a child of conflicts, but it was the people around Jacob, along with his own decisions, that were creating this havoc in, our, in his life. And it's important for us to understand that dynamic, that it's not God who is making all of these things happen. And it's important for this reason. How easy is it for us to blame God for the decisions that we make or the decisions that people around us make? It is too easy because we have a singular victory mindset that God will help us overcome, and that overcoming will be immediate and gratifying to us. It'll be the way that we want it, and we think that God should intervene or keep these kinds of events or these kinds of people from being in our lives. But through this story, we are reminded that Jacob made bad decisions that he had to deal with. And others did things to him that he had to deal with. And God had little to nothing to do with any of that. With any of it. Stopping the cause of the trouble in our life is not God's role. And we see it in this story. 
So here's what we need to ask ourselves as we consider Jacob and this whole situation. What would Jacob have been like if God had made his path straight? What kind of person would he have become if God had simply given him victory, instantaneous victory over everything? Back to, back to the story. Jacob was seeking, seeking God and trusting him more and more, and God was blessing Jacob and everything that he touched. But what are God and Jacob going to do about Laban? Well, They played Laban's game. And God took this scenario, which was supposed to paint Jacob into a corner, and used it so that Jacob gained the bulk of the flocks in spite of Laban's moves. Now, there is a complicated and frankly weird narrative where Jacob peeled the bark off of sticks and put them in the water where the animals drank. The male sheep that drank from that water then went out and mated, and they had speckled or striped or dark-colored offspring. Furthermore, Jacob only did this with the strongest animals, so he ended up with this entire flock of spotted, speckled, striped, dark-colored, strong animals, and his wealth began to grow. Now, this is one of those biblical stories that we might look at and say, well, I mean, come on, bark off a stick? Come on, like, I don't know much about animals, but I'm pretty sure that's not how that works. That, my friends, is precisely the point. There is no way that sticks could change what the sheep and goats look like. It doesn't work that way. Instead, Jacob had to do something kind of ridiculous. But he had to do it in faith, knowing that God would move, and God did. It's not science that made this happen. It was Jacob trusting God and God moving on his behalf. God is the one who made it happen. And we need to notice a couple of things. This didn't happen immediately. Jacob did not wake up one morning and all of a sudden there were a thousand spotted, speckled, striped, whatever. This took time for all of this to happen. And Jacob had to watch it go, however slowly it went, knowing that God was on his side. And God and Jacob were victorious, but it's not the kind of victory that maybe we would have wanted, either in style, in methodology, or in the payoff. But all this leads to the next super fun point of conflict, Because Jacob now had all of these flocks, and Laban was even more jealous. So when Jacob wanted to leave the first time, Laban said, no. He wanted Jacob to stay so he would be blessed. But now Jacob was being blessed apart from Laban, and Laban and his family were having a hard time with it. From chapter 31, verses 1 through 9. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. It's interesting what we tell ourselves when things aren't going the way we think they should. 
And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Okay, so things were starting to head south. Jacob heard all of this grumbling. In the middle of this conflict, you have something really important. There is a word from God. And what does God tell Jacob? Go back home. What does this remind you of? Does it remind you of anything from Jacob's heritage, perhaps? What is God's word to Abraham? Go. And what does he tell Jacob? Go. It is time for you to go to the place that I have for you. Picking up in verse 4. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock, and he has given them to me. Okay, this is a huge transition in how Jacob talks. Because it is no longer about him or his life or what he wants. Instead, it's about what God is doing. He heard the call of God in his life, and he is moving with purpose. So he decides that Laban is never going to let him go, and he needs to run. Same problem exists. Everything still technically belongs to Laban. And yes, Jacob had made those deals, but Laban was still the head of the household. So his only option at this point was to leave. And Rachel and Leah were on board. Hmm, I wonder why. When their father had treated them like property, when he had pitted them against one another and against Jacob, they were more than willing to go. And in fact, they get together and talk, and they say to one another, you know, we never received our portion of his estate. We were supposed to get a dowry, and we didn't, because when Laban gave them to be married, he took and he did not give. He took labor from Jacob and did not give them what was theirs. And so they decide in this moment, let's take what we want. So they go in and they take Laban's gold and precious idols. And I don't want to get too far into this, but they hide them on their persons. And by the time uh, things break down, all of these idols are defiled. You know why? Because they're not real in the first place. So Laban chased after Jacob, determined not to let him leave, and to once and for all put Jacob in his place. He had cause to do so because now that the property was actually stolen, he could have caught Jacob and his whole entourage and said, you stole from me, which Jacob's deal with the sheep and goats was to prove he didn't steal, but now they had stolen. 
And so Laban could do whatever he wanted. But on the way, God spoke to Laban and told him, you cannot say anything against Jacob, good or bad. You know what that means? Your word or idea of what should happen in this scenario counts for nothing. It counts for nothing. This is not Jacob fleeing you. This is Jacob following my command to leave. So Laban caught up to Jacob and he confronted him, this big showdown. And Laban, because he's Laban, which we said about Jacob when he was Jacob, said to Jacob, you know, I could completely crush you right now. But I'm not going to because of your God. Let me repeat that. I could totally crush you right now, but I'm not going to because of your God. Laban meant it as an insult. There's only one thing protecting you. Otherwise, you would be mine, sucker. But Jacob is unafraid. Why? Because Laban just spoke to him what Jacob already knew. What can you do to me? What can you do to me with God? So this is how he responded from verses 38 through 44. I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flock. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself, and you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. So Jacob is being sort of the head shepherd. If any animals were lost, he was responsible for that loss. And he always paid it. But furthermore, Laban always demanded it. Verse 40, this was my situation, that he consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and toil and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let's serve as a witness between us. Laban can't quite give up because he's still the grasper. But what does he recognize? There's nothing I can do to you. So let's make this deal that even though all this is mine, it can be yours. How gracious of Laban to make that deal with him. But what's more important for us is the realization that they both have. Laban's not fighting Jacob. He's fighting God. Jacob doesn't have to fight Laban in the ways that he would have before he understood who God was. God was going to work through this with him. And listen, nothing has been smooth. Nothing has worked out 
the way that it should. It has been a mess, like seriously, like an awful, awful mess. But without God, Jacob's life would have been a disaster. A disaster. He didn't win the whole time, folks. He lost a lot. He lost often. He had to deal with so many different things. And imagine what his life would have been like if God weren't there. And it's here that maybe we are reminded of Jacob's own words that he said in the middle of the wilderness, God was here the whole time, and I didn't know it. Well, he knows it now. And because of that, he's a different person. There are some tough realities that we learn from this story. Number one is that God doesn't keep us from trouble or conflict. And God isn't going to shelter us from our own poor decisions or from the influence of those around us, even if they're family, which gets, that gets in the way of the life that we want. God is not going to shield us from all of those things. And victory doesn't look like what we might want it to look like. But in the middle of struggle and hard times and conflict, you are going to have the opportunity to strip all the bark off the sticks and stick it in the water and see what God will do. Now you can look and say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Or you can trust that God has something for you and that what he needs you to do is to trust that something will happen that is under his care. What's it going to look like? We don't know. But isn't it better, although it may not feel this way when we're in the middle of it, isn't it better to know that what's going to happen is in God's hands and not your own? Because you see, in Jacob's hands, there was no way out. And Laban had stacked it to make sure there was no way out. The only way out for Jacob was through whom? It was through God. And he had to make a decision whether he trusted God to bring him out of it or not. Which tells us something else important. In the middle of conflict and chaos and struggle, often our eyes are facing down toward where we stand in that moment. And in this place where we're looking down, all of the stuff that's happening just rises up and we breathe it in. It 
It's the air that fills the lungs. And it's all we can see is what's right here in front of us and how awful or how much of a struggle or how much it's ruining our life. It's all we can see. However, if we will lift our faces up to what's ahead, we may not know what's out there. Well, actually, maybe we do. Because our faith says that God is out there. And frankly, wherever that path takes us, puts this behind. It doesn't take it away, you see. But it puts this behind. Is it easy? No struggle ever is. But who would we be if God made us winners? God doesn't love us because we win. That's not what it is. God loves us because we are His. We are His children the sheep of his pasture. So, this morning, let's close with these words from Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared against us, the torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Why? Our help is in the name of the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Blessed be the Lord who would not give us up. Blessed be the Lord for his unchanging love. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.